Hi folks, Jason Crane here reminding you about the 100 by 300 campaign. The idea is to get 100 members by the 300th show. Membership is easy. You can do it in one lump sum each year or month to month for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year. If you choose one of the higher levels, particularly the $500 a year or $50 a month level, you'll be mentioned on every single show. You'll be an official sponsor of the Jazz Session. The 100 by 300 campaign, visit thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member today. Once again, that's thejazzsession.com slash join. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com. You can download or stream all the episodes. You can also subscribe in iTunes or using an RSS reader, and you'll find the links to do both of those things at thejazzsession.com. Please do become a member. Looking for 100 members by the 300th show, and I need your help. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year, and I hope that you will. Uh, thousands of you listen to every episode, and I really need your support to help keep the show going. So please become a member. Today on the show, I'm welcoming back Nicholas Yuri, uh, a really wonderful composer. He's got a new record out called My Garden, which features poems by Charles Bukowski, and begins this way with Winter, My 44th Year. I am sad like a dead angel. I am sad like pork salt. I am mad like a dead angel. A woman has told me that when things get bad, she will come and bring me lovely living angels. I phoned her an hour ago holding a sharp knife in my left hand. The phone service said they'd leave a message. Like a dead angel, I am sad like a I am mad like a 
My guest uh, today is the composer Nicholas Yuri. His new album is called My Garden, and uh, I don't know if it was purposefully recorded to guarantee an interview on the jazz session, but it combines not only his music but also the poetry of, of Charles Bukowski, and uh, and therefore it was 100% guaranteed to be here on the show. <laughs> Nicholas, it's great to have you back. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to be back, and it was all written with you in mind. You know, I appreciate that. I, uh, I've i been encouraging my guests uh, in you know past interviews uh, to increase their chances of coming back by composing albums targeted directly at me, and I think you might be the first person to really take me up on that, so I, I thank you for that. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's that kind of <laughs> that kind of foresight that ensures a long career, I think. So maybe we can start by uh, you giving us just a little thumbnail sketch of who uh, Charles Bukowski was, and maybe you can cont- continue from there into talking about why he became your muse for this record. Perfect. So look, Bukowski was a Los Angeles-based uh, poet, um, sort of in the, I guess, in the postmodernist uh, camp. And he wrote a lot, uh, tons of poetry and, and novels and short stories. And, and being from Los Angeles, he was someone who was always in my consciousness as a as a reader. Um, and I grew up reading the short stories and uh, the novels, and had never paid much attention to his poetry, which is actually um, a majority of his of his published work is 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 poetry. Um, and when I went to school in Boston and left Los Angeles, I, I was, um, I guess, as anyone who moves uh, across the country into a completely different cultural kind of realm, I was feeling nostalgic for um, Los Angeles, really. And his writing feels very much to me um, a part of the landscape in a certain way. And I think um, when I when I readdressed and started re, uh, reading his poetry, it, it, it connected me to my home in a way um, that was comforting. It's interesting because uh, I kind of like you, I hadn't read his poetry until much later into my kind of literary life. In fact, only within the last few years. And I think one of the reasons that I avoided it was I, and I actually was avoiding it, not not just happening to not read it, was because everybody seemed to like it. Like if you would go into a you know a chain bookstore and you'd go to their usually pathetic poetry section, there'd be four shelves of Charles Bukowski, and then you know Paradise Lost and some Allen Ginsberg, and, then, and that's, yeah, that's you know, that's exactly right. That's all you could ever find. And I I figured, well, if he's that popular, you know, it's like the Billy Collins thing. You know, if, if everybody loves this guy, then I'll just avoid it, and I'll go for the stuff that you can only find in the obscure bookstores. You know, with the owners who don't talk to you. And then yeah. I got I started reading it too, and realized, wow, there's there's a lot here. There's a reason that he's well known, and uh, it's because there's a there's a lot of depth. But the other part that I wanted to ask you about was the connection with Los Angeles, because I, although I've been to L.A., I have no real experience there and have read Bukowski pretty much from my life uh, on the on the East Coast. And I don't I don't have as strong a connection in my mind between Bukowski and Los Angeles. I, are there kind of geographic markers or what are the things that I identify him in your mind other than him living there as being an L.A. poet? Oh, the the thing I think first and foremost is how um, self consciously casual his writing is, um, and that's something that permeates. And I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. Um, permeates Southern Cal- the Southern California experience. It's 
it's something um, well, just deep. There's something deeply self-conscious, and 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 yet it remains deeply casual. And I think I think his writing sort of captures that. And aside from kind of the landmarks of him cruising down Hollywood Boulevard and you know going to Griffith Park or wherever he's kind of um, hopping around to, just the tone of his writing um, feels feels well it, it just captures the kind of you know everything's sort of relaxed and but it's not really um and that feels very much like the california i grew grew up in and it's what separates it from my feelings about new york or boston or other, you know the two places i've lived on the east coast where things are overtly um anxiety producing <laughs> and people are comfortable with that. People, people, people bathe in anxiety in a way that doesn't. You're, you're not allowed to show that in California. You have to be kind of cool and calm and collected. Where here, people can run, you know, through the streets like crazed madmen, and and no one really seems to think twice about it. I can't decide whether uh, the last couple minutes of this interview are why you don't write travel brochures or why you should. <laughs> You can get the crazed mania of New York for a more muted mania, the more muted mania of Los Angeles. Yeah, the self exactly right. casual self-consciousness of Los Angeles. And for the yeah. uh, for the West Coast feed of this podcast, I'm just going to replace the last couple of minutes uh, with California <laughs> dreaming. And, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. I do love Los Angeles. I, I will say that. Um, I'm one of the, the few East Coast transplants from Los Angeles that, that does love Los Angeles uh, deeply. You have my soul and I have your money. You have my soul and I have your money. You have my soul and I have your money. You have my soul and I have your money. You have my soul. You have my soul. I have your money. You have my soul. You have my soul and I have your money. You I think I pick up, uh, and really I mostly picked this up from the uh, a thank you in the liner notes, that, that maybe Slaughterhouse was the first of Bukowski's it, pieces that you did? Yeah, that was the first the first piece I wrote. Um, uh, I got invited to write a piece for the Metropole Orchestra, which um, is a, a Dutch group as part of their uh, radio system. 
that is a symphony orchestra with a big band attached to it, and and the piece I wrote for them was Slaughterhouse, probably much to their chagrin. <laughs> Where did that idea come from? Um, well, I had started reading Bukowski, and and um, I, I spent a lot of time setting texts, and I was looking for something to do for that. Um, piece for them and, and it needed to be about 10 minutes long and it needed you know it, it, it I wanted it to have a certain vibe and I wanted it to feel um, somehow American I guess uh, in in jazz I feel like more and more that is something that is important to me is, is that it feels American in some way that I have no idea what I mean but I sort of feel that way anyway and and the Bukowski thing sort of it, it sort of popped out to me that the cell the of information that comprises that piece would be something that I could spin out into a much longer um, into a much longer piece that occupies a symphonic scale. interesting to me your approach uh, to setting texts because often you use incredibly short pieces of text to and make from them fairly substantial works where the text is actually repeated throughout but almost almost transformed by the setting around it rather than uh, there are some places in here um the one that leaps to mind most easily is for crying out loud where you use a longer piece and it kind of takes the length yeah. of the song to get out but uh but i really like that that idea of almost like these little uh, i don't know nuggets or crystals of poetry that are the the image of them is changing as the setting around it changes almost like light shining on it from different angles or something can you talk a little bit about that process the setting process yeah, well, I mean, my relationship with, with poetry um, is is very similar, I guess, in a certain way to, or my relationship reading poetry is similar to the way I write music, where I read something um, short, and I get a lot of different kind of meanings from it. Um, and a, a lot of the way, uh, or um, basically the way I write music is by coming up with a, a small cell of information that somehow sparks my interest. Maybe three notes, maybe four notes, it might be a rhythmic thing. And then I, and then I explore the permutations that are available within 
within that little blip of information. And and I think it, in when I read poetry, that very much happens. Um, I read four lines, and it feels to me uh, very different every time I read it. And so I try to capture that experience in the setting of that text. I find, uh, obviously, you, you know this, and anybody who's listened to more than one episode of this knows this, uh, I'm a big fan of, of poetry, too, and a, a writer of poetry. And uh, one of the things I find is that as I read, I tend to extract lines, sometimes that I'll use as uh, epigrams for my own work, uh, but sometimes just lines that I like. But I often wonder... You know, when when you get to the point in a in a novel or a, a poem or a book of poems where a line jumps out at you, it is contextualized by everything you've read in that book up to that point. So that 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 line may in fact contain in it the previous couple hundred pages or the previous ten lines of poetry. And I often wonder how excerpted on its own it stands. And I wonder what your experience was like to take some of these shorter pieces of of Bukowski, uh, or maybe the experience of your of people who've reacted to this album after hearing it, uh, what it's been like for you to take those uh, out of context, so to speak, and put them in these new settings. Well, I think that, I mean, that's the whole point, um, for me at, l- at least, in a certain way, of setting them to begin with. Um, I, I find the idea of uh, recontextualizing something to be very attractive. Um, uh, I think setting poems uh, you do have the information of or reading poetry or a novel or an essay or what have you you have the, the entire everything that you've read before but I think for me oftentimes I can revisit a line and have it be fresh again not revisiting the rest of the work and I think poems at least with Bukowski, um, the things just stand out, and they stand they stand on their own. Um, for instance, uh, the there's a little interlude, a short piece on the record called Lioness, that says um, there, there's a lioness down the hallway. Put on your lion's mask and wait. There's a lioness down the hallway. Put on your
that somehow just feels... I don't really know how to describe it. That just is a kind of a powerful image to me. And that happens to be a very short poem. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's an interesting question about the, the, the context of the previous poems in the book. But, but I, think, I think recontextualizing it and it being out of context doesn't make it any less powerful when you're evoking, you know, a specific image. From a uh, practical point of view for a moment, when it came time to set these uh, works, which are copyrighted works of Bukowski or his estate, uh, were there some hoops you had to jump through in order to get permission to use his work? (laughs) The hoops uh, (laughs) that are radiating nuclear waste and fire. Um, Yeah, it was an interesting thing. I mean, I've dealt with a lot of poets' estates, and uh, normally, you know, if you deal with a living poet, the, the response is like, hey, man, cool. You know, <laughs> you like my poetry, you know, have at it. Maybe, you know, give me a taste at some point when you feel like it, it's necessary. Um, and then dealing with some estates, it's more like they want, you know, maybe a little bit of dough, but they're happy. And even tracking down who I needed to talk to for the Bukowski thing was, was tricky. And then once I, I um, found the person, I, I, was, I was confronted with the fact that somehow I had not um, really guessed would be the case of his cult status. Um, so it took, it took some convincing and some, some finagling to get the, the rights going for this project. Uh, if, it, if it wouldn't be awkward, are you willing to talk a little bit more about that process? How, how did you go about convincing them that you were of sound mind and body, so to speak? Well, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I got in touch with the... I, I guess he's a lawyer, although it's a little bit unclear who or what what this person's job is, but his name is Paul Yamamoto, um, and he, he handles all of the rights for the Bukowski estate, and I sent him an email, and I said I would like to use, the, use these poems and, and get rights, and, you know, let's find some arrangement and um uh then they they shot back uh like a form a form letter that had a ridiculously high number um for film rights by number you mean a ridiculously high amount of money they would charge you in order to use these (laughs) poems yeah i mean i mean yeah more than the entire project (laughs) and at austin uh just to record it and get the musicians and and um so after I think we maybe exchanged a hundred emails, um, kind of with me explaining what the project is and the budget and what the kind of general process is that I have gone through securing rights and um, it was it was hard. I mean, it was it was uh, we we worked on it for two months, I think, finding something that worked for me and them. Um, that didn't leave me broke and and let them feel as though I was respecting the history and uh, status of the work. Wow. <laughs> That's really amazing. I mean, I guess I'm not I guess I'm not all that surprised because I, I can't understand the the cult status of Bukowski. Why, why was it worth it to you to go through all that? Well, I'd already written all the music. Well, there's that. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you know, in, in discussing this, you can't forget that uh, most 
jazz musicians are running on the jazz business model, which is which is cool, man. Yeah, <laughs> let's let's make some art. Let's you know, let's let's have a good time and 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 do the thing. And the and the other thing, I had just never had a problem uh, securing rights to something. Uh, it had never been a more than a two or three email exchange. And, and nine times out of ten, there's no monetary exchange. Um, but this ended up being a little trickier. In the Does it add any uh, levels of difficulty to performing this work, or is, or is that covered in the in the arrangement? No, it's covered in the arrangement. I can perform them hitherto forever. Okay, that's great. Uh, will you uh, talk about the the great band you've again assembled for this record? Oh man, the band is 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 killing. I, I they, they are the best group of musicians I've I've probably ever worked with, and. Um, the band, this record is, is all my music, but the band that is playing it is a band that Frank Carlberg, the pianist, and I um, sort of share. It's called the Carlberg Yuri City Band. And we've been going at it now for probably a little over a year, and um, it, it's just an incredible group of musicians who is extremely dedicated. Um, and have, a lot of them have been with me performing my music for years and years and years and some people are relatively new to me but um, everyone everyone contributes so much and it's a band of such incredible individuals that it really has a sound and a vibe all its own apparently the Bukowski estate is not as satisfied as we thought and they're sending people to pick you up 
as we speak. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, yeah. you know, I think we have to. Uh, we we talked about uh, we talked about her last time, uh, but she shines yet again on this record. We have to talk about the person who gives voice to uh, Bukowski's words and your music on this record. Oh yeah, Christine. Um, Christine Correa is. I, I can't say enough uh, positive things about Christine's musicianship and just who she is as a person. Um, she is she is my voice. I mean, I, I find her endlessly inspiring. And, and writing for her is uh, really one of the great pleasures in, in, in my life, having someone to execute uh, my vision in a way that is both uh, technically meticulous and deeply emotional. Um, so often um, you hear singers and they can either, they, they sing very well in tune, but there's not a lot of kind of grit going on or they don't sing so well in tune and there's a lot, kind of a lot of emotion, but she sort of uh, has an amazing balance between the soul accuracy, on the soul accuracy continuum. There are also uh, some guest voices on uh, the first track, Winter, My 44th Year. Can you just mention that? Yeah, so uh, my father, Walter, uh, came out for the recording who, to basically just hang and take pictures. He's a, he's a photographer, a commercial photographer, and he is the first voice you hear on the record. Um, and the second is Frank Carlbert, who is the pianist in, in the band. Um, and I thought, and, and then John Bear is also who is the basis is also reading and how did you happen to choose those three people they have uh kind of deep uh, how do i want to put it they have they have sort of heavy voices and they're very different voices and i wanted to get in in recording those three people the th- three perspectives sonically on the poem and and they're all of sort of or my father is older than John and Frank but 
you know, they're, they're guys of a certain age and, and there's a certain heft uh, to their voices that I think sort of carries the poem, poem along. Yeah, I agree. I think there's, uh, particularly in your dad's case, I think there's life in their voices. I mean, they sound, they sound like there's some life experience to back up the words. Ab- absolutely. I think, I think with all three of them, there's, um, there's, when you hear them speak, there's something going on there that adds, that adds something that I think, had I gotten maybe some of the younger guys in the band, um, or myself for that matter, they're just, uh, it would have been a different, a different kind of thing. For these compositions, had you selected the text first uh, in each case? Uh, had you started writing music? How, how did it work in terms of the, the sequence? Yeah, the text comes first. Um, they're all, all of the music is written specifically for the poems that I chose. Um, and it starts out with uh, reading the poem many, many, many times to try to find the natural cadence of the words and the form and the line breaks and then it, it moves on to kind of examining what it is rhythmically and then sonically what actual kinds of shapes are created when you read these poems in terms of uh, kind of accidental pitch material in reading them we may have spoken about this last time i can't quite remember but uh, a bunch of years ago right when this show started i think about four years ago i talked with Steve Swallow, actually not not for an episode of the show, but for a, a print interview about his work with the poet Robert Creeley. And Swallow yeah. said about Creeley that uh, he thought you could hear, when Creeley read his poems, particularly the ones that he had written while listening to the blues or bebop, that uh, Swallow said he always imagined he could actually hear the music while Creeley was reading because his, his line breaks and his phrasing were so... Uh, I don't know if precise is the right word, but evocative might be a better word of the music. Um, and it sounds like you found the same in, in this case where reading the poems suggested, however amorphously we're using that word suggested, suggested the music that would follow. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's more the case with, with uh, Bob Creeley's poetry um, than with Bukowski. Um, setting, I, I've done a fair number of settings of, of Creeley's poetry, and it's much easier. <laughs> it's <laughs> It's 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 much interesting. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And Bukowski, I should point out, hated Robert Creeley with a passion. Um, just as an interesting side tidbit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 all music. I mean, listening listening to things being read aloud, you can't help but experience them musically. I think, and and with Bukowski's poetry, the, the real challenge that I had there was um, the fact that it's not lyrical at all. I mean, it really is it's, it's it just isn't lyrical. It's, it's short statements um, broken up in sometimes very awkward ways which I think enhances the underlying suggestions that the poetry is making. But in terms of setting, it was, it was very difficult. I had a much harder time than with Bukowski than I had with, say, Robert Creeley or Rex Roth or, um, you know, like uh, Anne Sexton, for instance. Yeah, Bukowski kind of seems like uh, setting wire service copy or something like that rather than <laughs> lyrical poetry. Yeah, well, I, have a, I mean, I have a real predilection for dirty texts 
you know, things that are found, um, found texts that just weren't intended to be musical, really. I, I, I kind of enjoy, uh, enjoy uh, sort of hammering things out and, and sort of recontextualizing them uh, into something that not only is, was it really not intended to be used outside of poetry, but it's re- it really wasn't ever intended to be sung or musical in any way. And I sort of enjoyed the process of finding the music in the very uh, abrupt lines of Bukowski's poetry, right in this project. And I'll just point folks to your uh, first appearance on the show uh, for even more concrete examples of that very concept from your first record. Drinking beer doesn't make you fat. It makes you lean. Bogus bars, bars, tables, chairs, and bubbles. Drinking beer doesn't make you fat. It makes you lean. I know that you're uh, doing some work with Kurt Elling these days. Can you talk a little bit about what's uh, what's going on there? Yeah, um, he has been working, or I, I should start this with saying, I've been working with a European band called the Kluvers Jazz Orchestra, which is an incredible big band in Aarhus, Denmark. Um, and he, Kurt Elling, has been working with them, I think, off and on for many years, I guess. I'm not exactly sure. And uh, Jens Kluvers, the director of this big band, approached me some months ago and had me write um, a bunch of arrangements from, uh, from Kurt's repertoire And how did a he tour kn- that is just ending, I think, a few days ago. How did he know you existed, Jens? Um, he did a project with Dave Samuels, who is a vibraphonist, um, that I studied with uh, briefly my first year in school and has since become a collaborator and a friend. Um, and he was doing a, uh, uh, a concert with Jens and the big band in Denmark and, and mentioned me and then, and then encouraged me to get in touch with him and send him a copy of my last record. And he liked it, and he had me do a project with the band with Donnie McCaslin, um, I guess some music had fallen through and he needed someone to, to bang some stuff out quickly. So I did that. And then, um, you know, there was some more stuff. And then this uh, Kurt Elling thing 
popped up. And, and I wrote a bunch of arrangements for that. And are you uh, traveling at all to be part of the, or, or have you to be part of the, the preparation process for those performances? Not, not, for, not for this. Um, Jens uh, is, a, is a good conductor and, and, and does all of that himself. And um, I would like to go. <laughs> but it hasn't, <laughs> it hasn't kind of come up yet. So you, I mean, you seem to have carved out, or you be in the process of carving out, I guess, uh, an actual life for yourself as a composer of, you know, pretty non-mainstream music. How's that working out for you, if you don't mind my asking? Oh, it's great. I mean, I, I feel really lucky that I have found a niche um, that uh, people seem to enjoy what I do, uh, whether I'm composing or arranging. I mean, most of my bread and butter work is arranging uh, for vocalists. And, and I have somehow found myself, and, and I won't even say necessarily by design, in a, in a situation where people feel comfortable calling me to work with singers. And that has uh, uh, treated me very well professionally so that's been nice and what does that mean arranging for vocalists in, in what context arranging for live performances music for their backing ensembles or arranging for albums or both how does that work uh, yeah both um like this thing with kurt uh i arranged music from his uh, various records so two of the pieces came from his uh john coltrane johnny hartman sort of tribute record and then another two came from his record that I think is actually coming out today called The Gate. Um, and so, you know, there are these songs that need, that are recorded for a small group, and then they need to be reimagined into a larger context. So I, I deconstruct them and rebuild them to sort of fall in line with his aesthetic, the aesthetic of the band, and then the the requirements of an ensemble of that size. Um, so it's about, it's, it's, it's kind of what I do is reimagine what it is to begin with and then scale it up. And in the constant interest of self-promotion, I'll just mention that uh, Kurt was on the show, I don't know, sometime in the last year or two, talking about that Coltrane Hartman record, so uh, folks can go to the archives and, and check that out. My guest is uh, Nicholas Suri. His new album is called My Garden, and uh, it is a, a setting of the poems of Charles Bukowski. And, uh, man, you know I'm a big fan of your music, and uh, it was great to talk to you again, and I really can't wait to see what comes next. Well, thanks for having me, Jason.
That's music from Nicholas Urie's new album, My Garden, featuring the poems of Charles Bukowski. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, and you'll also find uh, links to subscribe in iTunes or using an RSS reader. My thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo, and who tweets at Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Please do become a member of the show, and then get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. <laughs>